Worried Writer, helping you to overcome fear, self-doubt and procrastination to get the work done. I'm your host, Sarah Painter, and I'm a novelist and self-confessed worried writer. For show notes, resources and much more, please head to worriedwriter.com. And now, on with the show. episode 51 of The Worried Writer. I'm recording this on Tuesday the 30th of April 2019 on a beautiful sunny day here in Scotland. My son has his first National 5 exam today so I'll be driving him to that later but for now I'm enjoying the peace and quiet of my garden office and thinking about how grateful I am for my work and for my life. You are a big part of that happiness, so as always, thank you for listening. My guest today is B.P. Walter. His debut psychological thriller came out earlier this year, and we discuss the highs and lows of becoming a published author. Before I give a quick writing update on my month, I want to give a shout out to my supporters on Patreon. Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. It means so much to me. I honestly wouldn't still be doing the show um, without your support. Much as I love podcasting, it does take a lot of time and some money to produce, and I wouldn't be able to justify it as part of my business. So thank you. Thank you too to new patrons, Maggie Menan and Rachel Smith. And also, I want to say thank you to Natalie Perry for upping your pledge. Now, you can support the show for as little as $1 a month or for $2 a month and above, which is, I don't know, about £1.50 perhaps in um, UK money, which is definitely less than a takeaway tea or coffee. For those who support at $2 and above, you get the monthly audio extra in which I give writing tips and things on craft and editing, things like characters, antagonist plot, stuff like that, and also answer patron-only questions. If you would like to join our little Patreon community, do head on over. That's patreon.com forward slash worried writer. So, my writing update for this month. I have been editing The Silver Mark, and I just sent it out to my ARC team last week. I've already had some feedback, some good feedback, which is, as always, a massive relief. The Silver Mark is out on the 24th of May, and I'm really excited to share. Um, But those who have been listening for a while won't be at all surprised that I'm also terrified, as always. Um, The whole pre-publication thing, it really... I'm always very, very anxious, but I am excited too. And I really hope that people who've enjoyed The Night Raven will enjoy The Silver Mark. Also, those who've been listening a while may already know this, but my Crow Investigation series is something that I decided to do independently, another step along the hybrid publishing path. And so far, it's gone really well, far better than I hoped, I'll be honest, which is very exciting indeed. So I'm in the process of signing a deal for the audio rights, So The Night Raven will be a truly hybrid book with a traditional deal for the audiobook. Now, I think that a large part of The Night Raven's success is down to the amazing cover. And in case you are hybrid or independent or even just considering going that way, I really wanted to recommend the agency that I used. It's called Books Covered and the art director is Stuart Beish, who has many years experience in the traditional industry. 
He has designed covers for authors such as John le Carre and Stephen King, and he really knows the business. He knows about genre and branding and, of course, great design. Plus, he's absolutely brilliant to work with. I've put a link to the agency in the show notes, but you can also just go to bookscovered.co.uk. I've also been writing another book, a new standalone uh, novel. It took a bit of a turn in the writing, so I'm kind of going back through and rewriting and reordering what I've got so far um, to make the beginning, the sort of early parts of it match the later parts. And that's just something that happens when you Well, I think it probably happens to everyone, but it certainly happens to me. And it's just a side effect of my writing into the dark, um, not planning at all. I discover the book I'm writing as I write it, and then I have to go back and rewrite it. And that's just how I work. Okay, next, I just want to answer a listener question. Don't forget that if you have got a question that you would like answered on the show, you can email me, sarah at worriedwriter.com or find me on Twitter at Sarah R. Painter. This question came via email and it's from Holly. Thank you so much for getting in touch, Holly, and for listening. Holly wrote... I've got a finished manuscript and I know the next steps will be to send it out to readers, agents and ultimately publishers. However, I can't bring myself to let anyone read it, even my very supportive husband. I just seem to have a real worry about anyone reading my fiction, which is a bit of a contradiction in terms for someone who wants to be a novelist. The fear of being judged or finding out I have no talent is really holding me back, but I know I won't improve my draft or my writing generally unless I get some feedback. Do you have any strategies for getting over this wall? Thanks again, Holly. Well, this question I absolutely had to answer because the empathy is so strong. This is exactly how I felt. Um, It took me years to show my work to other people and I had exactly the same fears. It was a fear of judgment and the fear that I had no talent at all and that Once I found that out, it would mean that I would have to let go of my dream of one day being a published author. So first off, massive hugs to you. Um, And also to say that when you say it's kind of strange that you can't even show your husband, it took me a very long time, even after I'd started to share my work with a critique group, um, even after I was sending work out to agents, I still hadn't let my husband, who's also very, very supportive, um, read any of my work. So don't feel weird about that. I think it's that you fear, it kind of makes sense, you fear judgment from somebody who you love and respect. So it makes sense to me that you would feel extra fear, really. Um, I certainly did. Um, As I say, now my husband is my first reader, which is great. And I say that to let you know that it can change over time. You can get over this wall. You can and you will. So first off, be kind to yourself and recognize that some of this fear is entirely reasonable. Showing our writing to others is really scary. It's our heart and our soul and the product of our imagination and something that we care deeply about. Of course you're going to feel fear. That's okay. It doesn't make you weak. It doesn't mean that this is not for you. Um, And it doesn't mean that you're not meant to do this. Ultimately, however, I am going to have to go with a tiny wee bit of tough love. You will have to get over this if you don't want to fail. So at the moment, your fear is protecting you. It's telling you that if you stay nice and safe and you never show your work to anyone, you've always got the possibility of succeeding. The very bottom line is that you have to decide whether you want to be a writer enough to put yourself out there. 
and let another person read your work. Nobody else can make that call for you. But do know that you are not alone. Every writer you love had to get over this hurdle, and every one of them was scared. Also, it is one of those things which definitely gets easier with practice. So every time you do it, and the sky doesn't fall in, and you don't receive hate mail, and people are encouraging, because people will be kind and encouraging, they absolutely will be, it will get easier. So in terms of strategies, I would say, number one, recognize that what you're doing is difficult. Next, I would choose the least scary person or situation. Whatever you personally find the least scary out of all the scary options. So whether that's your partner or an online critique group or a close friend or sending it out to an agent, whatever it is, just do it. (laughs) You're going to set a date. This is when you're going to do it and then follow through. And then celebrate the fact that you've done it. Recognize that you've taken a big step and that it was difficult to do. And then also recognize that nothing terrible has happened. Finally, you need to let go of the idea of your work being either good or bad. It's not a binary state. A work's quality, a book's quality, or writing's goodness or badness is a matter of taste. There isn't some definitive literary measure out there. All of which doesn't even touch on the fact that we all improve with practice. Don't think of this work that you're going to share as the pinnacle of your achievement. It's nothing of the sort. It is a learning exercise. It is you, a craftsperson, at the beginning of your journey or at the beginning of your training, if you like. Talent is vastly overrated. Practice is what matters. So really try to minimise the importance of this particular piece in your mind. Think of it as the first of many. I do hope that helps a wee bit. uh, But also, as I say, you do have to make that tough decision. And that's kind of part of the gig. It is really hard to put your work out there. It's really hard to be read by other people. It's also amazing. And you don't get the amazing stuff without the terror. They go hand in hand and they always will. Good luck and thank you again for the great question. As I said, if you've got a question that you would like answered on the show or a topic you would like me to cover, do get in touch. Thank you as always for listening and for rating, reviewing, subscribing and sharing the podcast. It means so much to me. Before we get to the interview section, I just want to give a quick shout out to some lovely folk on Twitter. Katie Lovell, who is at Katie5678, said, Thank you, Sarah Painter, for talking about Alpha Smarts on The Worried Writer. I'm a total convert. I'm so glad that you like the Alpha Smart, Katie. That's great. Also, Jack Leavers, who's at Jack Leavers. Claire Bentley, who's at C Bentley Writer. And Lesia Jakova, who has the great Twitter handle. Lesia Jakova is muddling through her first draft. Oh, and finally, Janet at World Anvil, who's at JD underscore Blythe. Thank you so much. And now, on to the interview section of the show. My guest today is Barnaby Walter, who writes under the name BP Walter. His debut novel, A Version of the Truth, is a dark psychological thriller published by Avon. It has been called beguiling, surprising, and sometimes shocking. Barnaby is an alumni of the Faber Academy and currently works in social media coordination for Waterstones in London. Welcome to the show, Barnaby, and thank you so much for joining me. 
Thank you very much for having me on the show. Um, as I've said before, this is a, a favourite of mine, this podcast. So to actually be on it is is in itself a dream come true. You are so kind to say that. And thank you so much for listening. Um, just to start things off, I was wondering if you could tell us all a wee bit about your debut novel, A Version of the Truth. Sure. Um, as, as you mentioned, it's it's a dark psychological thriller and it's it's got two timelines one set in 2019 and the other set in 1990 and the 2019 section is about a a woman a, woman, a wife and a mother called julianne and she's preparing a family dinner and it's uh, it's around the christmas season there's all kinds of social um, activities going on and um while she's kind of preparing for this her teenage son comes to her and says he was um looking on his ipad and in the family dropbox account he saw something that was is kind of strange and he took a look at it and he says i i actually think it's something really terrible and i think it's something to do with dad and suddenly her word is kind of world is kind of turned upside down and um this sets off a a series of incidents uh, uh, which hark back to something that happened during her university days when she met her husband and um, which is how the 1990 section comes in which follows um another another character called holly as she um joins oxford university um and encounters people from a very different social class and gets involved with a group of friends whose motives may not be entirely friendly and um from that we see how the two the two time time um, time sections meet um but yeah it's a very much a thriller about um, buried secrets and um, events from the past and how they kind of filter into and, and stain the, the present, I think. Mm, fantastic. And so obviously psychological thriller, did mm. you always intend to write a thriller or did you sort of consciously choose a genre? Or? Um, not really. When I started, um, when I first started writing, I, um, I came out of uni and I had an idea um, when I finished uni, when you get to that kind of bit where you're like, this is the real world now, what do I do? Um, and I knew I had an idea for a book and um, which, which I wrote. And that was more of a straight fiction title. And um, I mean, I, I really, really hate the distinctions between popular fiction, and literary fiction and that kind of thing. And, um, and I know there's this kind of like hinterland in the middle called like book club fiction. <laughs> and um, But it was probably relatively in the middle of that, kind of uh-huh. straddling the gap between book club and literary. And... Um, Similarly to this one, it was a novel about um, class and it was a novel about society and people's relationships, but it didn't really have a thriller element to it. And um, I have always been a big fan of the crime genre and everything from detective mysteries, Agatha Christie, things like that, to um, to more psychological thrillers from like Ruth Rendell. And um, I knew that if I was going to carry on writing books I was um, and try to get them published, I was going to have to take a step towards the darker because that's where my um, my real interest, um, particularly reading them, lies. So um, I think it was a natural progression for when I... Um, actually got a book published that it was a thriller really uh-huh no that well that sounds very sensible as well i think that's um really good advice is definitely to sort of go with where your natural inclination is mm-hmm. um because as you say if you're going to get a book published and then hopefully then have a career publishing more books you kind of want to be doing what you actually want to be writing and reading it kind of helps yeah. <laughs> um but yes congratulations so debut author congratulations on becoming a published author that's amazing thank you <laughs> <laughs> and i'm really interested that um your day job i believe has sort of long involved book selling and i know you're doing social media and stuff for waterstones now and i just wondered I mean, most of us obviously dream of being a writer for a long time before it actually happens. Um, and I wondered if your sort of day job 
an involvement in book selling was like a help or a hindrance to that dream? Was it, you know, you know too much about the industry or, <laughs> or um, what was that like? Yeah, that's um, that's a really interesting <laughs> side of it, I think. And particularly being surrounded by books. I mean, I, I started working for Waterstones as a, as a kind of weekend bookseller when I was 15 or 16 years old. And um, from from there, I've always stayed with the company since I was at university and um, now work in the head office um, doing the social media coordination. And um, I find being surrounded by that um, industry world, the traditional publishing industry world, one should say, because of course there's another there's another section um, as well, and um, being surrounded by a lot of success and um, back from when I was a bookseller on the shop floor, putting books on tables that were doing phenomenally well, and also on the other side of it, knowing that very easily there are books that don't do well, and um, we ha- well, we used to return books, of course, to publishers and um, that didn't that didn't do well, so. It's um yeah, it was a very tricky thing, I think, to go from knowing the um astonishing highs that you can achieve. And when a book does go successful, particularly um if you're a bookseller seeing it go successful, it's a very exciting thing seeing a book kind of catch fire like that. And um I was lucky enough before I left the um left the retail side to um to see several books um go through that from Fifty Shades of Grey to Gone Girl and the Girl on the Train. Um seeing the public becoming so excited about a book, um, I think in part inspired me, not because I felt I could ever achieve those kind of uh, amazing goals, but the idea of um people being really passionate about a story is um mm-hmm. I think a really great thing to see. And um so that was probably the more positive side of it. On the negative side um, and particularly working now in the more kind of behind the scenes area of, um, of, of the book industry, um, we hear a lot about the ones that do really well. And of course, the ones that get reported a lot in the industry press, such as the bookseller and things like that, are quite often the outliers or the ones that are the, um, the real surprises who go on to get like, you know, millions of pounds at the London Book Fair in deals and then go on to sell for like, you know, 100 territories and um, make a fortune instantly and things like that. And because they're quite often the ones that get reported, I think it's easy to listen to all that and feel that's a baseline or feel that's mm-hmm. normal. Mm-hmm. And um, um, then you you end up pitching yourself against that, I think, as a background, which is is probably the route to um, you know all anxiety, I think. Um, but as I said, there's there's always a flip side of the coin. On the other side, um, it meant I knew how difficult it was for any book, even to reach a bookshop shelf, even once it's published. Uh-huh. And um, there are so many brilliant books, I'm sure, that never reach a retail store simply because there's not enough space. There are too many books published and not enough, you know, um, um, sadly, you know, the the amount of, of space on the high street to some extent has contracted quite a lot, I think. And, um, you know, it's a fight, really. So I think <laughs> both of those sides, knowing how successful you can be and how not, is probably not a, um, a really a great thing for someone when they're typing around a laptop by themselves hoping to do it. Um, but it didn't stop me, thankfully. It's, um, I didn't, um, I didn't shrink away in fear. So at least, at least that's, at least that's something. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's so funny the way you said that, you know, when you sort of see, um, you know, the things that get reported, you sort of logically, you're aware that that's a news story. Ergo, it's, it's a big deal, but you're mm. right. We just absorb it as, well, that's what getting a book deal means. That's kind exactly. of normal in some way. Um, I guess because you don't have the, uh, the matching news story of, you know, 3000 books published and none of them. <laughs> you know yeah. a spot 
in the supermarkets or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And even the kind of middle ground as well, the writers who don't reach the top of the bestseller list or even anywhere near the bestseller list, but also aren't absolute failures. They're in a middle ground where they manage to make a living and they do perfectly well but aren't at either extreme and so don't get spoken about at either extreme as well. And I think that's a particularly hazy kind of middle ground that we never really hear of because it isn't the big story to tell, if you know Mm. what I mean. Oh, absolutely. The sort of middle, middleist. Yes. Uh So um, you were a student of the famous Faber Academy and I'd love to know more about that if you wouldn't mind telling us about it. Yes, sure. Um, I think the Faber Academy was a very important kind of turning point in um when i was um um trying to do this um this thing we call <laughs> writing um it's um because it gave me i think um tools and almost like an armory to approach it in more of a methodical way and it was a way that helped me realize that it wasn't this kind of strange potion making that um you know uh, writers go to a dark room and they do this 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 mystical magical thing that no one really knows how it works and um, of course there's an element to that because every writer has their own kind of secret formula but it helps um i think me and the rest of um, my class and the people who do it since find their formula and find their way of doing it and find their own kind of you know mystical alchemy and um realize that it isn't it doesn't need to be a really difficult hunt it um it can be and by sharing it with other writers and being guided by a brilliant tutor i had um the wonderful writer Rowan Coleman. I don't uh-huh, know yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, yeah. She's amazing. She's, she's absolutely brilliant. Um, and last year, her book, um, um, Summer of Impossible Things, um, went big on the Zobel Book Club, and it's it's a wonderful novel. All her books are, are brilliant, and um, she's she's just such an incredible um, inspiration, I think, to to her class because she really clearly loves. Um, what she does and the art of storytelling and I think that really helped me um, get to grips with the story I wanted to tell and the work in progress I I did while I was at the academy was the book that I ended up getting published and um, being able to share parts of it with with the class talk to her about it really kind of wrestle it down into what the particular narrative was all of that I think um, was just I, I can't even really say how um, helpful it was because it's um, it's so kind of buried now in the fabric of of, of what I do. Um, so if anyone's ever thinking about it, I know there are some quarters of the industry that get a bit um, I don't know um, shifty about the idea of creative writing courses and how it should apparently all immediately flow naturally without any kind of um, prodding in the right direction. But um, I think if anyone's even considering it, um, I would definitely say go for it because. Um, it, the best thing it probably does is make sure you have a consistent work in progress that you're working on and focusing upon. And um, thankfully, I don't um, struggle too much with um, procrastination, that kind of stuff. But for those who do, I think that's a brilliant thing because it actually means you get the writing done, I think. Uh-huh, absolutely. That structure, that motivation. Mm. Um, accountability, I guess, as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, just to wind back a wee bit. Um, so I assume that you've been writing and wanting to write a little bit before you started on the Faber Academy. Otherwise, that would have been a strange choice of things to do. <laughs> um, so had you sort of written something else before that? And then what made you just what made you go for the Faber Academy? 
I had a bit of an odd experience, actually. Um, I Well, it's not that odd, actually. Hearing other authors talk, <laughs> you, you start to realise that your odd experiences are actually completely normal. Um, <laughs> but um, at the time, particularly not really knowing about how the whole um, side of it worked, um, I, I'd finished my master's at uni and knew I wanted to do something creative. And as I mentioned, I ended up writing a, a kind of a general fiction sort of title. I sent that out to um, agents, uh, to see if I could get a literary agent about it, not really knowing about the whole process. I mean, I did read up on like the Writers and Artists website and things like that. And I um, I had some interest from agents who said, um, who either wanted to read the, the complete manuscript or, you know, said, um, it's not quite there yet, but we really like what you're doing. And if you write something else, do share it with us and that kind of thing, um, which gave me encouragement that hopefully I wasn't completely deluding myself hopefully I could one day um, get there um, but it still felt a huge huge long way off and it was a huge long way off <laughs> and um, so I then wrote another book and by this point I had a an agent interested in the second a second book and that book took a closer step towards the psychological thriller genre and it was a bit. It was a much longer book. It was um, over a hundred thousand words, I think. And it um, it was kind of big, long, and sprawling kind of monster. And it, it clearly needed a lot of pruning and cutting down. And um, for uh, reasons that you know to this day, I'm still not sure about um, the uh, potential situation with that agent. Kind of flatlined and um, didn't go anywhere at all. And that was a really difficult thing to kind of deal with because so many times I think in this industry you, you you're kind of ready for things to get better or you think oh my god this is the next step this is the bit that that goes on exactly and I um I think there were so many times each email you get that says oh I'd like to see the complete manuscript or the email that says um or can we get an exclusive on this title we're really interested on it that kind of thing you're like oh wow it's now it's really going to happen uh-huh. and then it and then it doesn't uh-huh. and um you're it's hard not to feel like you're back to completely back to square square one. And um, so I was kind of in this situation and I knew the second book needed a lot of work and editing, um, but I had an idea for a third, for a third novel. And um, I was really excited by it, but I was conscious of the fact that I'd never been taught creative writing in any um, um, kind of um, academic or focused sense. And um, at university, I studied film in English, but it was purely theoretical. And um, there were some modules that kind of touched on creative writing, but never in a in a really strong way. So I read in the back of a lot of books. I quite like reading the acknowledgements in the back of novels when I'm reading them. And um, particularly if you're trying to get published, um, I think hearing which agents people have gone with for particular books or which publishers and um, people they thank and the things they say are sometimes really interesting. And I kept on seeing cropping up people either doing the Curtis Brown creative writing course or the Faber Academy creative writing course and um, I read the websites of both of them and looked at the possibilities of doing them and I was so lucky that my um, employer by that point I was in Waterstone's head office and I was so lucky that they made it possible for me to go to the Faber Academy and kind of um, you know change around my working schedule to make it possible to go on Thursday mornings um, across the whole autumn and into the winter and that was something I chose to do, I think, because I felt I needed just some kind of guiding hand and some kind of, um, I don't know, <laughs> route through the darkness, if that's not too much of an emotive phrase. Um, because I felt I was I was kind of swimming in a, in a pond that I didn't really know the way through. And there was all these obstacles in my way. And it just kind of 
I wouldn't say it removes obstacles, but it gives you clarity and it gives you the ability to see them for what they are and the the ways to work around them. Mm. I think so. Yeah, that's right. That's a very long winded reason no, as not to why. At all. Not at all. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing um, those sort of earlier struggles because. Um, I always find it reassuring. I still find it reassuring to know that it wasn't just me that you yeah. know, wrote several <laughs> books. And, and But I, I just think it's so important that we are open about it. And so thank you. Um, mm. So that people who are going through this themselves know that it really, truly is so normal, even when you are a wonderful writer like yourself, who is going to have this amazing debut, but you didn't know that. You All you knew is that you were getting positive signs but that oh, close, but not quite there. And then why isn't this working? And then, oh, is it working? No, it's not. Oh, another reject. You know, and it does. It feels as if that's almost going to be the state forever. Yeah, until it, it really isn't. does. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, it feels like you're kind of trapped in this kind of maze, really, and you just don't really know. And everyone else, it looks like on the outside, everyone else knows the route. Everyone else, it looks like everyone has it sussed. There's the secret. And, um, yeah, and it turns out no, no one really does. Um, but um, but at the time, it feels like you're the only one who's um, who's kind of wrestling with it all, really. And that there's so many people with your fate in their hands. And it look it looks so kind of like you know there's this kind of gods of the publishing industry, um, agents and p- publishers and just people like that, and they've all got control over your future, and you're just sitting there kind of waiting for it to, <laughs> for it to, for, you know, get a yes or a no. And I had I had no idea that the Faber Academy was a sort of regular weekly um, in person thing. I assumed somehow that it would be mostly online or something. So it's great that you could do that with your. Yeah, I think they do an online one, and maybe I think Uh I I know Curtis Brown do, um, but um, yeah, I think I think they do an online option. But um, they do lots of different ones. They do a kind of like just starting out and an intermediate kind of one, and um, an expert one, and that kind of thing. And um, but yeah, I think there's a variety of ones in person classes, that sort of thing. But yeah, I did I did one that was every week with a class of people um, and and a tutor, Rowan, and um, yeah, it was it was brilliant. I can't sing its praises kind of higher. Fantastic. I'm so glad that worked out well for you. Going on to your full-time job, (laughs) (laughs) Um, how did you, obviously you had that wee bit of um, scheduling where they allowed you to go and do the physical bits of the course, Um, but of course you still had to write and work (laughs) full-time and I imagine that's still the case. So do you have any sort of tips um, for juggling a day job and writing? Well, how do you do it? (laughs) Oh, uh, wow. I, I wish I knew. I really did. Um, th- We're counting that... on you, Barnaby. Come on, tell us. <laughs> I, I find it really um, difficult, I think, particularly for me. And I'm sure, like, for every writer, no one's doing this um, just for the hell of it. Everyone's doing it because they really want to. And they're certainly not doing it to get rich. And um, I find trying to cram in the thing that's most important to me um, but squeezing it into little bits of time here and there, actually kind of upsetting, really, because it's the thing that you really want to um, demote your, devote your full attention to. And you really want to do the best you possibly can. But because of the way the whole industry works and because of the way um, writers have to kind of function and live, um, you really have to kind of slot it in, really. And that's that's really what I do. I... Um, I try to write a little bit in the evenings. I write every lunchtime for an hour, um, but I don't have a kind of um, a set 
thing it is really just kind of when i can i i I do um but the main the main hassle for me is that i spend my entire day in front of led backlit screens um either the phone or um, laptop and that sort of thing and so when i go home quite often the last thing i want to do is spend hours more in front of um a, a laptop screen having spent the whole day on one um so if there's any kind of procrastination I do, it's quite often not because I, don't, I really want to get the writing done, but it's because I don't really want to be kind of sedentary in front of a screen any longer. Um, so I think that's probably the most difficult part for me, I think, um, going between working full time and, and writing, really. Um, I think weekends are probably when I'm most productive because that's when I can really um, kind of do it in bits and have breaks and um, do other things to kind of, you know, take my mind off it and, and that sort of thing. But um, overall, um I, I would I would struggle to give tips because I feel I don't have it figured, <laughs> really. So um, I just say do what fits in in the rhythm of your own life, really, and don't get too hung up on um, trying to get a routine if your current state situation doesn't lend itself well to a routine. I think. Mm. No, that makes sense. Be a wee bit kind to yourself about that. Yeah, uh-huh. definitely. Yeah. yeah. And in terms of the nitty gritty of the writing <laughs> process, um. Do you sort of aim for a particular word count uh, for a day or for a writing session or do you have any requirements? I mean, you just said that you write at lunchtime, so I'm guessing you can, you're quite flexible on your writing setup. But what's your kind of ideal? Is it silence, music, cup of tea? Well, um, <laughs> I think my ideal in terms of um, like word count and writing that kind of stuff, I don't have any it sounds terrible to say I don't have any goals or aims um each day it's um if I'm able to that in itself is a really good thing I see and um the amount of words I write I never really focus upon and I'm I'm very I mean I'm aware that this is completely different for every writer and this is by no means um kind of this is the perfect method or anything like that at all and um sometimes if I hear other kind of people in the creative industries say this is exactly how it should be done this is how I do it and everyone else should do it this way I, I I find that difficult and inaccessible really and it kind of um makes it feel like an exclusive club when it isn't everyone i think has got their own kind of way of doing it and um so i don't yeah i don't focus on the amount of words i'm doing or pages or anything like that um and quite often um a lot of it it's either research or thinking and that kind of stuff and that can be the really hard bit and the bit that really has a great knock-on effect on the book, but it doesn't lead to, you know, a thousand words done that day. Um, so, yeah, like, like as you said about being kind or compassionate to your to your working self, I think that's important. Um, so, yeah, I don't focus too much on that. But so what I do try to do, I try to, and this does sound like a weird kind of ethereal thing, but I do try to think about the book each day and think about how it can progress um and try to figure out any of the kind of the nitty-gritty problems that might be within the plot um just try to untangle them a bit and um in terms of the actual process of writing i do plan a huge amount i'm not one of the writers who can sit down and hope for the book to to end up and i'm full of admiration of those who can um because that to me really seems like a mystical alchemy because that um yeah that sounds kind of amazing but i i need to kind of have um, a map for me to follow and when I originally have an idea for a book and quite often it arrives almost like a fully fledged thing um, I then have to write it down step by step and I vaguely plan it by chapter um, I knew I normally write out a plot by okay uh, chapter by chapter breakdown a plot synopsis 
and then use that as a living document. I almost think of it as as, as kind of a Bible for the book. I think that's a, a term they use in the TV industry, mm-hmm. um, which has all the kind of details about it, the main kind of pitch for it, the main um, theme, the main kind of what if question at its core, that sort of thing. And I do one thing that's probably slightly eccentric, um, but I'm sure other writers do it as well. I quite often cast my characters with actors um and i cut i I copied their i cut out their faces um from like either movies or or publicity stills and um in the document have a cast list of every character with their age their job um who they're married to or whatever and um where they figure in the plot and have their face next to it and that enables me to kind of move them around a chessboard if that makes Mm -hmm. sense and um really see and help me um kind of visualize them when i'm laying it out um and that's probably comes from um, my kind of film studies um um era um but um i'm very kind of uh, i like that kind of visual sense to it and having um a chapter by chapter breakdown with a three-act structure quite often it will change when i'm writing it quite often it will it will alter and it's not set in stone but just by having it it makes me feel in control of the process rather than the process being in control of me really um it kind of puts it that way around um and then finally, in terms of the the kind of environment, um, I, I'm not too sensitive really to that. I can write at home. I can write in a in a coffee shop. I regularly write in a cafe Nero um, in Mayfair near our work. And um, yeah, it doesn't bother me too much if it's too loud or if there's loads of like shrieking families nearby <laughs> and that kind of thing. Um, that's not conducive. But um, yeah, I'm not I'm not too particular really. Um, mm. But um, I, I think. Uh, complete silence would probably be the worst thing I, I quite like some kind of background noise and if there's nothing i usually put on um again this is probably very strange i usually have um rain sounds or something mm. in the background yeah. <laughs> um things like that or just to ge- kind of generate white noise or, or something just so it's not complete kind of pin drop silence um because then i think you can become like an echo chamber in your head i think when you're writing um so yeah basically that's i think that's um that probably helps me focus on the book a bit more if there's just something going on i think mm. and you, you mentioned the the three-act structure there is that another thing that you kind of learned about when you were doing film studies or is that something you've you know picked up later um that was something actually i learned about when i was um that was after the faber academy although that was touched structure was of course mentioned in the faber academy but that was when my book that ended up getting published a version of the truth was out on submission or out with I can't remember if it was out with agents or publishers or whatever. And I was busy writing my second book. And I realised I was quite lucky that that one kind of fell into a good, uh, well, a a general three-act structure anyway, through the edit and that kind of stuff, almost by accident. And it's not completely by accident, because I think we all watch films, we all read books, and that that goes into us, whether we know it or not. We absorb it, don't we? (laughs) Exactly, yeah. And if, if we watch a film or read a book that doesn't obey it, we know we can we can feel it something doesn't quite feel right and um, sometimes that's the point sometimes it's deliberate of course um but um i i became very interested in the mechanics of plot and the technical side of it and began to read a lot about it and um listen to a lot of interviews of authors your podcast for example um and um various other things on like youtube of authors talking about the way that they plan or structure their novels uh-huh. And it was actually the author, Kelly Taylor, um, C.L. Taylor, um, who put me on to a really, really good book. Um, and I really should have remembered. I think it's called Stealing Hollywood. 
Um, I think oh, is name, that Alexandra uh, Solokov? I think her name is. Yeah, maybe. Skolokov. I should just let you um, say the name because I'm not no. sure how to say it. Oh, <laughs> I, it's I amazing. It's, yes, it's a really, really clever book. And it's really interesting about how she takes um, the kind of the blueprint for the average um, Hollywood blockbuster or, or, or a general kind of mainstream um, cinema um, uh, work and lay it out and show how we really can understand the mechanics of story through things like The Silence of the Lambs, I think is one that she really focuses on in, in the book or Indiana Jones or Harry Potter. And to sh- just by seeing it with a plot that you know well, um, seeing it laid out and realising that there is a structure that it obeys, whether the author set out to do it deliberately or not, it it, it nearly always falls into that into that structure. So I became very interested in doing that and realised that I could use um, those things to help me when I was planning or writing my next books, just to make sure I was kind of keeping on track and that sort of thing. And that I really felt helped me um, concentrate on the things I found more fun, like the characters or the way they're talking to each other and, and the way to get the surprises across. Once I've got those foundations in place, I think, once you've got that kind of structure to build on, the building on it becomes a lot more enjoyable. Oh, no, that makes so much sense. It's very reassuring mm. to know that you've yes. got, like you say, one bit, that's taken yeah. care of. <laughs> Just do all the rest. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also curious, you were mentioning about casting characters and things, which is something I do. I look for pictures of characters. But when I'm writing... Um, I sort of hear dialogue I hear the story really and I don't tend to visualize very much I'm not very good at it I practice trying to visualize what you know if I've got to describe a scene I will sort of consciously have to force myself to visualize it whereas I also know other writers who kind of almost see it unfolding they will see a scene almost as if they're watching a film and I was just curious do you do either of those resonate with you or do you do something completely different (laughs) Yes, yes, they do. And I think a lot of it is the general kind of, again, this will sound strange, and this is quite, I think this is more using filmic kind of language, but a general kind of mood and tone I see in a visual way. And the main, my main interest in cinema, and for a long time, I thought I was going to go into the film industry, either through, either production or, or marketing and, um, and distribution. And a lot of what's in, interests me in there is the way kind of colour and tone is used to provoke mood. And quite often with my stories, what will inspire, with the books, what will inspire an incident or a situation in it will be kind of the look and feel of how that would play out in my head. And I don't know if that makes any sense mm-hmm. at all, but um, mm-hmm. um, I think the setting, I think um, the way, um, for example, in my in, in a version of The Truth, it's set in a very affluent area of 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 Chelsea set in Knightsbridge in a um in a in, in a rather posh house and um the sense of that house being um a lot of creams a lot of expensive looking um fabrics and lamps and that kind mm-hmm. of thing and the lighting being very kind of soft and warm and it being a place of comfort and wealth and safety um that in of itself as as something that's driven by mood and tone I find really kind of compelling when I'm writing and that helps me hopefully bring that across to the reader through the language, I think. So it's almost like a translation from the visual into the, into the writing. Mm. And um, I, I either get that through something that just kind of pops into my head or it would be something if I'm like um, walking around and I see something that's interesting or watching a particular film and I really like the way they've used kind of um, um, the lighting or the look of the set and that kind of stuff. Um, I, I find it quite, 
fascinating seeing how that can be distilled down into language. Mm, that's really interesting. And um, I know that you've mentioned that you don't really struggle with procrastination, which is great. I'm delighted <laughs> for you. <laughs> but this is the worried writer. So I am going to ask you if that's okay. Do you have any kind of struggles with writing or with the creative process? Or or have you found conversely that it's been more being published and there's been marketing sides or, you know, anything? What has been an issue for you? <laughs> oh, um, I... I mean, as I said, if, if there is, I mean, there is procrastination, but it's, it's quite often um, <laughs> just for the fact I just want to get out of the house um, rather than the plot. I would, I would very much like to focus on writing for a lot longer. I'm, I'm quite lucky that I've got two at the moment. I've got too many ideas and not enough time. And there may be a, cha- a time when that changes when that switches to the other side. Um, but at the moment, it's, it's kind of finding the time to get those in. But the things that do bother me and at the moment, um, I'm I'm going through a weird situation with my second book, and um, in the gap between um, having my first book out, um, having it finished, and going out on submission, and to it being published, I I've written two novels since then, and um, there's a, a bit of a discussion at my publishers at the moment about which one should be book two and which one should be book three, and that kind of thing, and talking about things like. Um, brand position um, what was it like market positioning and being a kind of a re- reliable brand as an author and um, pitching to retailers and all these kinds of things and of course when you're writing particularly that first book um, you don't have words like Sainsbury's in your head when you're writing it or words like uh, market positioning or words um, like I don't know um, even plot structure and things like mm-hmm. that things you learn later on and so what probably worries me is getting the other stuff that is in is out of my control quite often, getting the book in a position where that other stuff can work well and can function properly, which is probably one of the reasons why I've got more into um, where the planning side of me has probably grown the more I write, because I'm quite conscious of the fact that so many other people are involved in the book. And it's both a product and a piece of of, of creative um, endeavour and how it needs to work on both counts. And so if there's something that ever worries me when I'm writing about it, it's it's probably the the kind of finished object, finished product. The awareness of, of everything exactly. that's going to come. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, you're going out into the world. It's tough. Every- yeah everything from the promotion to the retail to that sort of stuff and that's something that's new actually since I've been published and it's something that is you know something I'm still kind of um, getting to grips with um but it, it introduces a new level of consciousness and anxiety actually into the process that it probably isn't there or if it isn't if it isn't there it isn't amplified as much in the first stage when you're writing because when you're writing you don't have a publisher and you you you, you, you don't know if it's ever going to go out to the shop floor you don't think about any of those things really you just write for the fun of it and um so i think you kind of collect those anxieties <laughs> the more you go along the um go along the process Absolutely. i think so that's mm. that's probably my main basis of of, of kind of worry really mm. and how have you found it that experience of being a debut that book you know you get your dream it's amazing but suddenly there <laughs> it is this product of your imagination and soul and heart is out for anybody to read and you get reviews and you hear quotes and you have to, you know, you do things like this. <laughs> um, how have you found that sort of public persona? Um, how has that been? 
It's kind of disorienting. Uh, disorienting. I find it. It's very strange, and I think it's something that when you're writing, you think of it as the dream, and you think of it as something that um, you, I think you think something really, really stupid. You think once this has happened, all my problems will be solved, and um, things will be brilliant, and I will then forever be happy, and there'll be no other problems because I would have done it. It would have been great, and um, of course, that's just not true at all, and it's it's complete nonsense. And you just collect other problems and other stresses. And saying all this, of course, isn't to diminish the wonderful, wonderful feeling of of, of finally achieving it. And, um, and I'm aware, of course, that you know, people listen to this podcast who who are aspiring writers and really want it. And this isn't to say at all that you know it isn't great. It is. It really is wonderful. But it's not a one sided thing. Mm. And I think. The thing I actually grappled with or found it more difficult to to kind of grapple with was quite the feeling of anticlimax, actually, and the feeling of something that you've really, really wanted for such a long time then to happen. And your life quite often doesn't change, I don't think. And I had this recently with an interview um, where um, it was kind of implied that my life was almost unrecognisable or, or kind of had changed so drastically or, mm-hmm, or whatever. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the wording of it. And I was like, well, my life is identical, really, in so many ways. I still go to work. I still, you know, do everything I did before. And the only thing that's really changed is the fact when I'm writing, I know someone's going to read it, um, whether that be my agent or my publisher or hopefully readers out when it's out in the shops. Um, that's the only really thing that's kind of changed. Um but of course, things do change a lot. And as you say, like the public presence, I mean, my social media, just kind of, my own personal social media just kind of changed where I now get strangers telling me that they've just bought my book and they're reading it, and which is lovely. Or I get strangers telling me um, about, I don't know, typos within it or, um, or, or factual errors or something. And I'm like, what do I say to that? Um, <laughs> Thanks. But, yeah, brilliant. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll tell them to pulp all the copies or something. Um, but... Um, but yeah, I actually found that particularly the week of publication and when everything kind of changes and there's a lot of focus on you and your book, I actually found that a lot trickier than I expected. Mm. And I knew I'd find the launch because um, HarperCollins was so lovely to do a launch party and I'm I'm immensely grateful to, to them for doing it. And uh, I'm aware some some authors don't don't get that. Um, so I, I'm, I, I say all of this with the understanding that, um, that it was a wonderful thing. But I found that really, really difficult. And it took me a long time to decide whether to actually do a launch. I'm a natural introvert. And the idea, I've kind of like spent decades making sure I'm not the focus of attention in a room full of people. And then to suddenly have that happen, uh-huh. suddenly everyone be there from all different walks of your life from colleagues to family to old friends to university friends all suddenly be in the same room together all there because of you and Uh your book um for me is a complete nightmare and I both hated it and loved it at the same time and um it's um yeah that was really difficult and publication day was lovely because I went um with my mum to the shops to kind of see it in in the wild and that sort of thing so that was really nice um but yeah, it's kind of going between being a focus of attention and being everyone wanting to talk to you about it and that kind of stuff, which of course is lovely and they all mean the best, but finding that really, really quite scary. And also, as I said, by the anticlimax, having some parts of it, not that momentous that you expect, that you expect mm-hmm. uh, at the moment. And, um, 
it's really lovely but there's maybe a little bit of a trend or um, I've spotted quite a few of them now of authors videoing their finished copies arriving yeah. and unwrapping it and bursting into tears because they're so overjoyed that the thing mm. that they've crafted is now in a physical form and it's lovely to see that emotion because it is so important um, but when my physical copies arrived I was at work and I um and the box kind of arrived and I'm, I mean, I'm I'm very lucky to receive lots of um books um working in the book industry um, um to read and um and talk about and might need them for work purposes and so my finished copies arrived as every other book does that I receive at my desk um in in like in a box and um unwrapping it was really nice but I didn't like burst into tears mm -hmm. and the world didn't change and um I was it was kind of more like oh it's here this is nice uh -huh. um rather than this big cataclysmic event that you kind of build up to I think Absolutely. I think partly is it does come from being on the industry side and knowing a lot of kind of the behind the scenes bits and also I think when the books in that pre-publication stage you're kind of kept filled in on so many parts of it. You see the jacket being designed, you see the proof covers, you see the copy, um, the copy pages, that kind of stuff. Mm. And so once all that's happened, seeing it actually in a physical thing, I think hopefully I'm not the only one to feel like it's a bit of an anticlimax because you've, you've kind of seen so many steps so far. I think, really. I think you're definitely not the only one. And I think it's also <laughs> something you're touching on there is um, social media, it's part of our job. Mm. And so we are hopefully being um, genuine and authentic and all of that. Uh, and, I, you know, we are. But we are. It's a curated, uh, you know, a carefully curated um, yes. thing that we are sharing, um, which I think we will do in our personal lives as well. But very much so, it's our job now to be an author in the public eye in a small, you know, in whatever, whatever way for me, a very small way. <laughs> um, but it's... And so that part of that is that you are judging how you feel inside based on somebody else's author brand mm. curated. I'm not saying for one second that that wasn't genuine, but it, it was a moment. Mm. And exactly. you actually, they, they didn't video themselves, you know, the week after when they were, I don't know, feeling quite meh about it all. You yes. know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but that's hard. It's that comparing. And mm, because we don't have yeah. this the, this kind of career path where you know exactly what level you're at or where you are on, and there's lots of myths about it all, and it's very difficult, and it, it can be quite yeah. Quite hard. I was I was um, particularly as you say the idea that not being a traditional career structure, I think, is one of the most tricky things. And um, at the moment, um, my book's going out onto. Um, foreign language submission and that kind of stuff where they uh -huh. submit it to you know um, um and i believe it works differently slightly to the uk version where you'd kind of do it once and if you don't get it that's fine whereas i think you can try multiple times in different countries and that sort of thing and um the idea of it going to other territories is very exciting and it's it's gone to different english language territories like canada and the us um but i was talking to a friend recently about the idea of foreign language submission and they asked um, what will that do for you financially, for your mm. career structure? And I said, who knows? Really, who knows? I said, you could literally put a pen in the middle of a long line of numbers. Mm -hmm. And it it's really difficult, I think, being in a career that by the ping of an email could transform your life mm. or um, keep it exactly the same. And there being no rhyme or reason to it, really. And on one day, one particular book could um, sell for an astonishing amount of money in different territories. And then the next day, 
with different people behind that desk go for a relatively average amount uh-huh. or no money uh-huh. at all. Oh, yeah, very and little. <laughs> very little, exactly. Surprisingly yeah. little. <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, and reading interviews with them, people like agents and them saying there's quite often such a disparity between it and no one really knows when, when, that, when that comes about. So being part of a career and not really knowing where your progression will be, mm. whereas if you work for a, uh, for a company, quite often you can see a clear career structure in front of you and you can see what, what goals you have to achieve to get to that ne- next level, that next promotion, or go to another, another role and that kind of thing. Mm. And um, whereas in this one, none of those rules are laid out for you clearly at all. And they're, and they're all really, really down to that moment at that time. And that is really, really, um, it, it really causes a lot of insecurity, I think. Absolutely. It certainly doesn't help. <laughs> no, yeah. So, um, yeah, and while you're trying to focus on your book and that kind of stuff, to have that kind of uncertainty in the background is is really difficult, I think. And um, in terms of social media, um, so your your full time job is in the social media sphere. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, do you have any? That means you obviously you find it as an author super easy, no problem there. Uh, <laughs> thumbs up. Um, and, I wish that was the case. <laughs> and do you have any tips for? the rest of us um doing running our social media as authors or are there any big mistakes you see authors making similarly to to the kind of um the tips about writing process i, I i'm always quite hesitant because i think ed- everyone's got their own kind of um, uh-huh. their own thing their own thing that they're doing and what works for them particularly um but i find it quite tricky trying to go between doing the social media on a corporate level and um, I'm my predominantly my day's social media is spent doing the day to day tweeting and Facebooking and Instagramming on the Waterstone social media feeds. And which is, of course, um, something that we try to get across in a, in a personable and friendly tone. But essentially, you are still, you know, you, you, it's a retailer. It's an entity and, that you are. Exactly. Yes. Of course. yes. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I have a wonderful, um, wonderful colleague, our audience development manager there, um, Will, who I work with. And um, what we do is is um, kind of take the books that um, the company is um, really interested in, in you know, it, the ones we're really interested in talking about, really, and talking them, uh, talking to readers about them, but with the company kind of, you know, branding as part of it. So so doing me as, as an author is something different. And I've also got my own personal social media that I do with, you know, that's just friends. And um I have friends at the moment who um, are deleting their social media because of um, the negative impact it's had on their life and um, the, the time stealing that it does from mm-hmm. them. And we hear lots of things about um, um, the rise of anxiety being exacerbated by it and that kind of stuff. And um, I'm, I'm occasionally a little bit envious of the people who can because both quarters of my professional life are quite reliant on it uh-huh. and um even though of course there are lots of authors who don't have social media because i'm on it already and i do it as a job it felt you know kind of obvious and natural to do it as well um from an author side um but the idea of being able to just delete them all and have silence um sounds kind of like bliss sometimes Absolutely, um, yeah. yeah but in terms of um in terms of tips and stuff, I'm still learning. I'm still doing it in a way that I haven't done it before. And there's still all kinds of stuff that I uh, I don't know. And doing it from a, a single person entity is really different from doing it from a corporate company entity. It's working out your own entity as exactly. BPL yeah. to the author and then mm. yeah. branching out from that or, or having that inform everything that you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. precisely. 
I mean, and in terms of like advice for other authors, the only thing I see quite often that's really easy to solve, and it sounds like really boring and technical, um, but is just to use high res images um like of your cover art of your um facebook headers of when you post um pictures of books um just to you um, like even if you don't have one just ask your publisher for a high-res copy of, of your book jacket and it immediately looks so much better on someone's twitter feeds on their retina screen on their phone which is really unforgiving and um to post a pixelated image of 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 your book it's a really really easy thing to solve i think um so that's the only only thing i feel um qualified to kind of give <laughs> give any kind of tip on because it's something i think everyone can solve really easily and um and even posting links um to things particularly on facebook where when you post a link it can look it can look quite um, not very photogenic um, when it comes up as the automatic feed through that comes through. Just posting a nice picture with the link instead of the of the link preview can quite often look so much better, mm. I think. Um, so they're very, very kind of like small, basic things. No, they're great tips. Um, Thank you. But, <laughs> That's great. Uh-huh. And it's also reassuring um, for me <laughs> to hear that um, I don't wish this upon you, but I, I find it reassuring <laughs> that you're not just instantly. Yes, I know exactly what I'm doing, and oh god, no. <laughs> um, you know, branding, no bother. And that you also struggle with that feeling of sometimes wanting to just switch social media off and feeling kind of envious of the mm. the hermit writers of yesteryear. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so I find that immensely reassuring, although obviously commiserations that we're in the same boat there. <laughs> yeah. I cannot believe the time has gone already. I could talk yes. to you for hours. So um, just to finish off, where can people find out more about you and your books online? I'm on um, everything like Facebook, Instagram, Instagram and Twitter. Um, and I post like updates about my books and if they're on promotion and that kind of thing. Um, on there, I think on, on Instagram, it's BP Walter Author and on um twitter it's just um barnaby walter which is my my normal first name and um yeah so so those are probably the best support of call and and in my profiles i've got like links to where you can find them at retailers and things fantastic like that. well i will put all the links in the show notes uh, but thank you so much for your time it has been lovely to speak to you thank you so much for having me on the show it's it's, it's been brilliant thanks for listening today for show notes and links head to worriedwriter.com If you'd like to connect, find me on Twitter at Sarah R. Painter or use the hashtag WorriedWriter. See you next time.